and welcome to Relationships in Progress with me, Ingrid Stair, and our special guest today, which I'm looking forward to introducing. Relationships in Progress is a podcast about relationships in progress. As I continue to look for the love of my life, I speak with relationship experts as well as experts in their field about relationships and how we can, I can, you can learn to have better relationships, have a better sex life, have a better romantic life, have a better family life across the board. So I'm thrilled today to introduce Dr. Alex Korb. He is an adjunct professor at UCLA. He got his a PhD in neuroscience from UCLA, his undergrad from Brown. And he is the author of, and I want to get the entire title, the author of The Upward Spiral, Reversing the Course of Depression, One Small Change at a Time. His blog is also on his website, which is Alex Korb, spelled K-O-R-B, PhD.com. Welcome, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. I'm so excited that you're here. I uh, had met you actually on a Facebook page that you have, and I was studying neuroscience when I was becoming a coach myself. So mm -hmm. uh, not the kind of neuroscience a PhD would study. So I'm excited to pick your brain about what, what happens to us. Let's start at the beginning. We'll start off soft. What happens to us when we start to fall in love? What are some of the chemicals that are happening? Yeah, well, when you when you first start to fall in love, uh, it really gets the dopamine system really engaged. Uh, I mean, that's like early on in the process when you're really attracted to someone. Uh, basically, um, our you know humans are really social animals. And we need each other and we need to be able to form close relationships in order to survive. And nature sort of figured out like, oh, well, we can just reuse some brain circuits that were good for other stuff and just uh, make those, make it so that people, you know, enjoy being around each other and want to form close relationships and make it so that it's scary and painful uh, to experience rejection because we already had brain circuits that, made it enjoyable to like find good food or to like get scared about being separated uh, from the tribe or to experience pain. And our relationships sort of map on to those circuits. Uh, and really when we first start falling in love, it's very similar to when you get addicted to something. Uh, the, you have a reward center in your brain uh, that when you, when you see the person or when you get the text back from them, you know, that you've been waiting for, like you just get this little boost of dopamine in the reward circuit and that feels really energizing and activating. But when you don't get it, uh, like when you see the three dots, for example, in the, in the text and then they don't send it, uh, you can actually have these feelings of dysphoria and, and, and lack of pleasure because uh, you don't get that burst of dopamine and then you feel even worse. So it can really have these highs and lows. And speaking of lows, isn't it the lows of the serotonin that, serotonin that keeps us kind of 
overly focused so it's harder for us to sleep kind of thing when we're falling in love yeah i mean serotonin is this whole other uh, molecule i'm not sure if you misspoke or you're also talking about the serotonin because the dopamine and serotonin interact and they're really both important for our well-being uh but yeah like when uh when dopamine gets involved it really focuses our attention on something and that's really important when you're first, you know, getting together with someone, your, your thoughts are about them. It's sort of rewarding to think about them. And uh, it's really stressful to think, you know, they, you know, might break up with me or not. And we, we can have these wild swings. Like I remember when I first started dating my wife, she didn't like texting that much and I was like, you know, reading everything into each response and how long it was. And I remember telling my friend, uh, like, I, you know, I started dating this girl and she's amazing. Like, we have these great conversations and like, I can't tell, you know, if she's like totally in love with me or like if she doesn't really like me at all. And he was like, yeah, I'm sure it's one of those two options. Uh, <laughs> and but that's like dopamine uh, really gets us on this high. And then when we, when we don't get it, when we're on these lows and our, our stress system gets involved, which activates all of our emotional circuitry and that contributes actually to the highs feeling really high and the lows feeling really low. Uh, and so is that more, I want to know this for my clients too, because yeah. that's, what I learned is that your dopamine goes up and your serotonin, when you're falling in love, now when you, you, it changes when you're in love and, mm -hmm. and our chemicals are supposed to change for that homeostasis and that right. more stability, right? So yeah. that serotonin is going down and that's what keeps us fo focused and it's harder for us to sleep. Is that accurate? Right. Well, um, the, I mean, serotonin is involved in uh like delay of gratification serotonin is like a mood stabilizer uh that helps to you know smooth out some of the rust patches of dopamine uh because like the way the dopamine system works it's like a a spoiled child like when it doesn't get exactly what it wants right now then it like throws a temper tantrum and that's how like that's how your emotional circuitry works and the serotonin system is much more uh involved in the prefrontal cortex which is the, the sort of most advanced part of uh the brain i've conveniently gone uh, bald over my prefrontal cortex to illustrate uh i have a very large prefrontal cortex as you can tell and it's growing um but the uh uh yeah like the the prefrontal cortex helps us, you know, keep our long-term goals in mind. Like, oh, it's okay. You know, maybe this, this one won't work out, but you know, I'll keep dating and it'll work. And then that sort of helps calm us and soothe us down. But our, the emotional circuitry in our brain like doesn't want to hear that. Like, no, 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 if I can't fall in love right now, then everything's terrible and awful. And like, if I can fall in love right now, that's great. And so like, uh, yes, when we are in that um, sort of, heightened state of stress and arousal, then 
our actions and our focus are driven a lot more by these sort of deeper, uh, older regions like the reward circuitry or the emotional circuitry and aren't guided as much by the sort of thoughtful, intentional, um, prefrontal circuitry. Does, you mentioned prefrontal cortex, so it's, it's developing until we're 25, 26 years of age. Is mm -hmm. falling in love different when we are younger than it is when we are older? Has there been any link to that? Um, well, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, uh, yes, I, mean, I don't know how rigorously that specifically has been studied, but uh, I would say yes, because so much changes as we get older. For one, we know that at least like when it comes to dopamine, the, the newness of something causes greater release of dopamine. Uh, and so when that's, that's why we always talk about, oh, your first kiss, you'll never forget your first kiss or the first time you fell in love because like that's the first, it's new you don't know anything at all of what to experience that heightens your stress, but it also heightens your reward. And, and there's nothing inherently wrong with stress. Stress is also a, another word, a way of looking at excitement or anticipation. And so the first time that you're falling in love, it's, there's maximal excitement and maximal anticipation. Uh, and uh, that tends to happen when we're younger. But on top of that, when we're younger, you know, we also have these, you know, new hormones uh, that are pulsing through us that we don't fully understand uh, and that have a stronger control over our brains and our bodies. And then on top of that, the prefrontal cortex, which sort of provides this calming aspect to our lives, like isn't fully focused, I mean, sorry, isn't fully formed. And so that when you're a teenager, you know, your early 20s, like, well, the highs are really high and the lows are uh, really low. And sometimes that can be addicting because, like, because uh, the highs are even higher given that the lows are so low, which makes us, you know, want to keep pursuing and come back for more. And as we get older, things can mellow out a little bit. And I think sometimes people... Uh, misunderstand relationships, they misinterpret their own relationships because they're comparing everything to how it felt when they were younger. And you could miss out on something great because like, guess what? Like nothing is really going to experience, like feel similar to the experience of like your first crush you know, getting to kiss your first crush in high school. Uh, but like, that's okay. Like no amusement park that you go to now is going to compare to your first time going to Disneyland or what like, uh, and it's, and in fact, I think sometimes it, it might also be that we remember the you know, times as being better before because we remember only the highest highs and we forget about the low, terrible, uh, Things. So I think, and sometimes it's just a, a trick of the way our memories work that we're telling ourselves that it was so much greater back then. Uh, but yeah, 
as you get older, you can still experience those things and you can experience, still experience those tingles, but oftentimes we, um, we sort of adult our way out of these feelings. Like as our prefrontal cortex gets more developed, we sort of live our lives in a more logical, structured ways, which is helpful, but in some ways we suck a lot of the fun and enjoyment uh, out of it, which is not a, a necessary process, although it, it tends to, as our habits build up over time, uh, we can sometimes lose some of that magic. And sometimes falling in love is, is learning to allow yourself to experience those, those deep feelings like you allowed yourself when you were younger. Excellent. Thank you. And, and that's why uh, myself as a relationship expert and other people also talk about how important novelty is in long-term relationships, that injecting novelty and exploration um, is so important. Can you talk a little bit about exploration circuitry as we get older, try, learning new things and how important that is to have new experiences with somebody that we have a long-term relationship with? Right. Yeah. Um, well, like dopamine is, uh, as I've mentioned already, is like the chemical that gives us that little boost of reward. And it is enhanced when things are new or when they are uncertain or when we're stressed out. Um, and all of those things happen when you first meet someone uh, or you're, it's during your first relationship. Uh, because when you don't know somebody really well, like you can't tell, like, are they flirting with me or are they just kind of dismiss me or whatever? And it's actually that uncertainty that makes it more enticing when you've mm -hmm. been with someone for six months or a year or longer, uh, you kind of get this sense that you know them, you know how they're going to respond. You have a greater predictability about them and that reduces some of the dopamine. Uh, and that's just sort of a natural part of, um, uh, a relationship becoming deeper is that you do understand someone. Um, and that's also something that leads people to think that there's something wrong with the relationship that they're in. Cause it's not as exciting uh, and heart pounding as it was at the beginning. Well, yeah, because you're more familiar with them. It's transferring from more of a, like the re direct reward circuitry dopamine to a deeper oxytocin um, and broad based dopamine activity throughout the brain. So you have a deeper relationship where you feel more comforted and connected. Yeah, there's not always as much excitement. But that is sort of why, as you mentioned, it's important to explore and try new things uh, together so that you still get to, you know, experience some excitement and titillation in your life, but also that you see your partner in different and, you know, new experiences and contexts because your partner starts to get more dull when you think you know exactly how they're going to respond to everything. And if you go to a new restaurant together or you go to a new, you know, national park together, well, then each of you gets to experience the other person in this new context, in this new environment, and that uh, helps to keep the spark alive. But on top of that, 
new experiences just on an individual level helps us grow as a person. And so if your partner is growing as a person and becoming a different person, well, then they're always continually a new person for you to discover. Uh, and that is why it can be so important for keeping that relationship fresh. That's excellent. And even as I recommend it, even a small change, even if you normally go to Starbucks, for example, to go to a different coffee shop can be, can be something that helps you to refresh the relationship. So we, are, so we talked a little bit about the beginning of relationships and we are supposed to ease on into this more relaxed brain state. So the average divorce in the United States is actually eight years. And we talk about the seven-year itch. Mm -hmm. I've understood it to be chemical-wise. And I'm so glad I get to ask a neuroscientist. Four years, two to four years is when the brain chemicals start evening out. Tell me what your thoughts are on that. Where, where we, we get more relaxed in the relationship and we start feeling more safe, which is, you know, part of it in order to form family units and nuclear families and so on. We start feeling more of that trusting. I know this person now. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I don't know exactly. There's not like a clear cutoff, uh, but I think like the biggest transition, I think, is probably in after the first few months where you go from you know anticipating or wondering about whether this person is going to respond or not and you're excited and you're doing almost everything you do is new with each other and you get a lot of this dopamine immediate rewards and then as time progresses you know after the first six months or so uh you start um deepening your relationship to the point where oxytocin gets more involved. And that's this um, uh, chemical that helps us feel closer and more connected to people. And that actually helps to reduce stress. And because it reduces stress, well, then your dopamine isn't firing as much as possible. So you feel deeper and, and calmer with the person, but they might not, you know, be as, uh, uh, get your heart racing quite as much, um, the, uh, and that's, as I said, that's when sometimes people think, oh, this relationship is, is losing its flame. I'm like, no, it's, it's deepening. It's becoming something different. And I think what happens is that we don't just deepen our relationship with each other. We also fall into habits personal habits and relationship habits and habits also can be calming in a way, but sometimes we feel like we get stuck in our habits and habits are kind of like autopilot. Autopilot in a plane is, is really helpful because oh, you can focus on something else for a while uh, and yet still move towards your destination. And think about like, how all-encompassing your relationship was in the first, you know, three months or six months. You couldn't focus on getting work done. You couldn't focus on these other things. Like if your whole life was that first, you know, three months of a relationship, it would be really hard to get a lot done at work. And as your relationship progresses, it allows you to feel close and connected to this person, but still focus on other important things in your life. Uh, 
But if you fall into too much of a rut, then you start to take your relationship for granted and you start to take this other person for granted. And then, and your brain is really good at this. It's sort of like whatever good thing in your life, it's very naturally sort of starts taking it for granted and we stop paying attention to it because we're like, oh, that's always going to be there. And I start focusing on other exciting new things. But then if it's a person that you're taking for granted, well, how's that going to make them feel? But also you're going to stop focusing on the positive things about them and you're just going to focus on, oh, well, I have to really work late and oh, now my girlfriend is you know, bothering me and she's getting in the way of me doing this thing. And then we start to look at our spouses as, or, or our um, partner as someone who's just getting in the way of these other things that are important to us and our habits and our relationship habits just start to get in the way, quote unquote, of these other things that are important to us. When in fact, it's helpful to remember that, oh no, we've allowed ourselves to fall into an autopilot that's taking us in a direction that we don't want to go, or we've forgotten that, no, this partner isn't getting in the way of some important goals. They are the way, they are my important goals. I want to have a deeper relationship and that takes focus and effort. I can't just ignore it for you know two years or five years and expect that it will always be there. So um, let me make a quick leap. And then I really want to talk about your book and your course that you're doing. Yeah. Quick leap is, is there any neuroscience behind infidelity? Uh, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff. Um, there's one of the um, uh, coolest things is this, uh, um, this research into a, a rodent species called the vole. Uh, and vole, like, I think they're kind of like prairie dogs or moles or something. And yeah. And so there's two types. There's the um, uh, prairie voles, I think, and the montane voles, the ones that live in the plains, the ones of the mountains. I can't remember which is which exactly, but one of them is monogamous. Prairie uh, they vole. only have one partner, the prairie voles. Uh, and the montane voles are, they just, you know, have multiple partners. But they're, very, they're, like, they're basically the same species. And scientists notice that one specific chemical uh, receptor is different between them. And it's called the vasopressin receptor, which is uh, analogous to oxytocin. Um, it's basically a very similar structure, uh, has a similar receptor. Uh, and this is the thing that helps us feel like close and connected to others. And uh, if you don't have this receptor or you don't have as much of it, then it's uh, harder to feel that close in connection. If you don't feel a close connection with someone, then like, why would you go through all the trouble of continuing to go to that person when you could get more dopamine somewhere else? Uh, and I think that's sort of uh, an analogy that works in humans as well, because there's, you know, in humans, it's not as black or white, but there's studies that shown that, uh, women with certain uh, uh, genes for a particular vasopressin receptor are more likely to cheat uh, than women with another set of genes. Uh, and it's not, you know, it's not a, uh, a black or white thing. It's just that, oh, well, if you have this, you know, vasopressin receptor particular format, then it's less likely that you'll form as deep an attachment and 
therefore the the dopamine burst that you would get from some new face or you know tall drink of water that walked in the door oh that might make you change your actions um there's also research about um uh how men who have certain uh changes in their dopamine system are more likely to be promiscuous or cheat because uh like we all need a little bit of dopamine and excitement in our lives and if your brain is really insensitive to dopamine then you need a lot and you need a big burst uh to get a sufficient amount and so how do you get a big burst of dopamine well you you find a new partner you hook up with someone new there's a lot of uncertainty they're new or you do something a little dangerous like cheating you know you might get caught uh having you know a a an affair outside of your relationship is like really stressful and that enhances the dopamine of it. And, uh, therefore, like if you're, if you're someone who, you know, needs that thrill to get, uh, the dopamine, then it's, it's likely that you can, you know, get bored perhaps of a relationship that you're in and want to seek your thrills elsewhere. So you have to be really mindful of keeping your relationship fresh. Thank you for that. Is the is it because we're switching over? We're going to move over to your expertise in neuroscience mm-hmm. is very much about depression. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I, I so, got a PhD in in neuroscience of depression, trying to understand what's happening in the brain and what we can do about it. And that's sort of why I started looking at relationships more because relationships are one of the you know, biggest factors that help rescue us from depression, but also because they're so important to us, if they go wrong or feel like we can't connect with people, well, then that can sort of plunge us into depression. Absolutely. And one of the reasons I definitely wanted to talk to you, is there a difference before, between, before we go head on into, we don't have too much more time either. And I just, I, I wish we had, <laughs> I wish I had three hours to talk to you. So is there a difference in the brain between depression and loneliness? Because loneliness is starting to become something that we're really watching in this field of relationships. Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap, but depression is, uh, is a very complex thing uh, because, and a lot of people misunderstand it. They think depression is just like feeling sad all the time. Uh, But there's a lot of other stuff. Yeah, sometimes people don't even feel sad all the time. They just sort of feel this emptiness where emotions should be. Uh, or you can feel guilty or ashamed and you have trouble sleeping and you have trouble enjoying things. Uh, loneliness yeah, might make you feel down or what we colloquially would call depressed. Uh, but it's just sort of, I'd say, for someone who truly has depression, like it's just sort of the edge of you know, falling into that downward spiral of depression. And uh, it's just that if you are lonely, then you're much more likely uh, to get stuck in that downward spiral, particularly if you are someone who, you know, is very self-critical, or you don't have a lot of other great stuff that you enjoy in your life, or, you know, uh, you really you know, need to feel close and connected with other people in order to be happy. Uh, So loneliness isn't always going to precipitate 
depression, but it is a big risk factor because social connection is so important in helping uh, us create an upward spiral and sustain our well-being. So people, it's interesting you say that people can be the cause of depression and they are also the cure for depression and Mm -hmm. loneliness. Um, Tell me a little bit. So I was uh, grateful that you had offered a course uh, in regards to the upward spiral. And I took the course and that was, it was an online course for several weeks when quarantine had just started. You were playing around with it, trying to figure out do and now it's become a successful course yeah like yeah i created a a webinar like when the um when when the quarantine sort of in the pandemic first hit i was like i feel like i should share some of this helpful neuroscience with people and so i should create this webinar the upward spiral for managing stress just sort of as like a a quick little simple thing that you know people can understand about their brain uh and then from that, I was like, oh, well, <laughs> clearly there's a lot of interest in this. And from that, I created the Upward Spiral core program, which is a longer uh, course to really get a deep dive in all of these things that you can do to change your brain activity for the better. So we know about positivity ratio, um, that for every one negative thought, you need three to kind of neutralize it and five to really outdo it. So I would like to know what you would give us as five suggestions of what we can do as individual people. And if it bleeds over into relationships, maybe that's my final question for you is how can you help us get out of it before we register for your next class, which is next month, I want to say? Is it next month? Well, I try and do it. uh, I'm not sure exactly when the next uh, one is, but uh, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll make that announcement soon. If people go to alexcorbphd.com, then they can stay up to date. Um, the, uh, yeah, I mean, the, that positivity ratio, I think, is, is sort of helpful as a metaphor to understand that, like, oh, sometimes when you have certain expectations and one piece of negative information can really impact you uh, much more strongly than a, than a similar piece of positive information. And uh, particularly if you uh, are an emotional person. And while I don't think that specific ratio of, oh, like, you know, three to one or five to one is the same for everyone, it's helpful to realize that sometimes negative information, uh, like losing $100, uh, can impact you a lot more than say finding a hundred dollars makes you feel good. And just recognizing about that, about yourself, the asymmetry there can be helpful. I love that you do that. I want to interject because that comes from Dr. Fredrickson's work, positivity, the three to one ratio, and then the five to really outdo it. So a lot of times when we're learning, for those of us who aren't PhDs in neuroscience, we're learning generalities. And what I love about talking to you is you get into the nuance of, well, it's not exact. And the more I've learned about neuroscience, I explain the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And I'm like, it's not really that your whole prefrontal cortex goes off. So you're really good at kind of getting into the nuance of, it's different for people. You know, it's not like hard. I'm fat, this thing and that thing and that kind of stuff. Right. It's 
for the nuance of individual people. I love that. Right. Yeah, and that's where it like people, you know, science can sometimes do a disservice because the purpose of science is to like, I mean, one of the main purposes and the first goals is to like understand how people work or like to understand how the brain works. And one of the things we've started to understand is that, okay, there's some, a lot of principles that sort of explain how the human brain works. But then there are also places where every individual person is different. Uh, so that doesn't mean, and, and sometimes people will go too far to that end, but oh, well, everyone's different. Science can't tell us anything. It's like, no, no, science can tell us a lot. Like we all have the human brain, but there is a limit to where, you know, we can, you know, we can do a study on 20 people with, you know, relationship troubles and 20 people without and average them together and see sort of what the differences are. But like, you are not 20 people. You are one individual person with your own specific life experiences, your own specific tuning of all these different brain circuits. You have a specific tuning of your reward circuit and of your, you know, memory circuit and your pain circuit and your relationship circuit. And all these things are interacting with the specific life that you are living. And by actually understanding the science, you can start to use it to recognize patterns in your own life and realize, oh, oh, what parts of me or what feelings am I feeling are like totally predictable, just given that like, that's how the human brain works. And like what parts of my experience are like, oh, like kind of unique to my own myself, just because of my own life experiences, my own specific habits, my own coping habits, or my own, uh, uh, you know, work environment or whatever. And like learning to separate those out, I think helps us get a better understanding of ourselves uh, and what it takes to make not just a generic person happy, but what specifically for me at this point in my life does it take to make me happy? Because there's no scientific study about this specific moment in your life, but we can learn a lot from all the scientific studies that uh, examine different types of people in different situations. Thank you. I, I, I'm going to shift just real quick. I promise this is the last question. <laughs> I wish I could do this for three hours with you because when we first started talking before we started recording, we did talk and I'm really interested in this for men specifically about testosterone, depression. And we know that since the 1980s, testosterone levels have been decreasing for men. And then since the earth, since 2000, uh, suicide rates for middle-aged men have been increasing. And I had asked you, is there a correlation between testosterone levels going lower and depression um, and therefore perhaps suicide levels too for men specifically? I really want to hit this for, for my men. Yeah. Uh, I think the, you know, what we'd like to know is some simple, really specific explanation of like, oh yeah, oh, your testosterone levels are going down. Or like, oh, well then just um, get a boost of testosterone and that's gonna solve all of your problems. And uh, that's just doesn't seem to be the case. Like uh, that is perhaps a decline in testosterone can contribute to these things, but it's not, it's not like the one cause because if you just, okay, increase testosterone, that's not gonna solve all of your problems. Uh, but, 
when it comes to depression, it, it does appear that um, it's different between men and women. Uh, and testosterone is likely one factor, uh, but so also is socialization and our social roles. And the question is how much of that is sort of innate uh, and you know, that we can't control just based on our genetics and how much of it is based on our society, we can't always tease apart. But women tend to get depression at about twice the rate of men. Uh, however, there's one good news is that um, antidepressant medications tend to work for women about twice the rate as men. So antidepressant medications don't work as well uh, for men. But one of the things that I uh, wanted to look at, I, I took this big data set and I was trying to do this analysis to see at like, how much does like having a good job and like being productive at your job matter? Because it seems like something that you know, our society asks men uh, more of men that like, you know, they be the provider uh, and whether that's, you know, an outdated notion, I think that's still a lot of, uh, there's a lot of cultural um, Very to that. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I looked at this data set that was, um, had all these people going for treatment and depression. And it turns out that uh, men who are unemployed did significantly worse with antidepressant medication than uh, uh, unemployed uh, women. Uh, wow. So like being unemployed for a man sort of made the antidepressants not work as well as being unemployed for, for a woman. So yeah, like they're sort of equal levels of depression, but if you were a depressed man who had a job, antidepressants work better for you than if you're a depressed man who doesn't have a job uh and, and job changes uh, job changes happen in middle age for men for sure yeah so and Brene Brown talks about you know for men their shame spiral is more weakness or is, is weakness yeah so for to be virile to be this strong man and, and doing and achieving definitely has an effect yeah and there's a there's another part of the analysis that I did where I looked at okay if just the people who have jobs like how much is their productivity being affected? Uh, and if your productivity was being really affected um, by the depression, that didn't really affect things at all if you were a woman. Like women who had their job productivity uh, being affected versus not affected, well, they responded about the same rates with um, antidepressant medication. Whereas men uh, who had their productivity affected at work, they didn't respond to antidepressant medications as well. That there's a certain sense of um, our well-being for men that's more wrapped up in our ability to be productive and contribute. And uh, I think some of that is related to testosterone because testosterone uh, it doesn't, um, from all the research I've said, it doesn't make us like more aggressive or competitive. Like it, it makes us want to win and succeed in whatever environment that we are in. So if the environment that you're in requires that you be violent to win or be aggressive, then testosterone is going to make you more 
violent or more competitive. If the environment that you're in requires you to be, you know, more cooperative, well, then testosterone can make you be more cooperative. It's very uh, flexible. But I think a lot of the um, messages that we get from society as men are saying like, well, if you're not contributing uh, or being productive, then you're not as valuable and therefore um, not having a job or um, uh, not being as productive and it can have a greater effect on our well-being. And I think when you combine that with the fact that boys and men aren't taught to recognize these feelings or deal with these feelings in more constructive ways, then they can sort of get stuck in that. I hate that I have to end this now, but we are so over time. It, clients, my clients will know that this is normal for me, that I generally don't watch clocks. And so, and so producer Steve makes me watch the clock and I'm like watching it and I'm like, <laughs> Oh my God, this is so interesting. My battery is going low. Um, this is so interesting that I just want to keep going on with this because I really, I'd love to have you back on sometime to talk about, you know, again, to really continue to talk about this and flesh this out so that we can give people really good information so that they don't feel so alone and out there just I wonder why this is happening to me. I wonder why this isn't responding for me. Yeah. So, and, and the frustration and not being able to like share all this great stuff in, you know, half an hour is exactly why I wrote two books about the upward spiral and why I was like, Oh, I should, I should record some of this or create like a brief webinar so that people can learn some of this in a few hours. And I was like, Oh, clearly some people want to benefit and want to learn a bit more deeper. And that's why I created the upward spiral core program. There's like a whole course, uh, that people can take a deep dive into this stuff. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for being on. It was such a pleasure. And we, we all probably learned a lot. Um, I enjoyed um, your being here and being present and talking about, you know, from various different things. And I have all these pages of notes and guess how many of them I actually <laughs> have? None. So I hope you have a great afternoon. Thank you again so much for being here. Appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me and allowing me to share with your audience. Thank you.